just because you work in the blue collar world doesn't mean you have no need for tech and artificial intelligence. In fact, Gabe Batstone, the CEO of Contextair, believes that blue collar workers can benefit from AI more than most. In this episode, Gabe and Ian dive into the ways that Contextair is delivering relevant information right into the hands of the men and women working on job sites around the world. They discuss how AI and AR will continue to grow and change, and the ways that both will continue to make job sites and the employees on them safer and more efficient than ever before. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash buildmobileapps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I mean, Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And on the other line, in another country, perhaps... Gabe, what's going on? Hey, thanks so much for having me in and, and all the way across that 49th parallel up here in Canada. I think we were talking about this beforehand. I think that you might be the first Canadian guest that we've had on the show, uh, at least whose company is based in Canada, but we'll have to go back and, and fact check that afterwards. But we're, we're just absolutely thrilled to have you on here. You're working on something that I think is a fascinating topic, what you affectionately call blue collar AI. So we're going to get into all of that, your background, and much more. But first, why did you decide to found Context Air? It was really an evolution and in some ways the culmination of two decades of, of work in technology uh, in the blue-collar sector, you know, in the industrial environment. And, and very specifically, I like to refer to on the last tactical mile. So like most startups, you know, you should start with some why questions. And, and for us, those whys were, why did the technology revolution leave behind the people who work the hardest? You know, why do 13 workers die on the job every day in America and one a day here in Canada? And why do we have all of these people looking for better jobs? They're either unemployed or underemployed. Yet at the same time, there's a cry about the lack of skilled workers to make the economy run. You know, why is this happening? And, and so those are those questions that, that we said, there has to be a better way. There has to be an answer. And when we looked at it from our experience, Carl Byers is the co-founder uh, here with me at Context Air, who said, well, we're a couple of guys who came from blue collar backgrounds, grew up in those environments, but ended up in this crazy technology world of AI and AR and ML and every acronym you can think of. And we said, we actually understand both these worlds. And maybe if we can bridge the gap of having artificial intelligence used for blue collar workers, we can begin to address some of those why questions. I love that idea. And I think that a lot of times when we see kind of that fear about the unknown and fear about technology, fear about AI or, you know, machine learning and, you know, robots taking over, which or, you know, movies where stuff like that happens. I think a lot of that fear is just about this. How does it affect me? How does it affect my job? Do you think that as you're working with the types of companies that you work with, and, and I think if, if you could explain who are the types of people that you are working with to make, make this sort of change happen, do you feel that they are extremely passionate about their workforce and trying to figure out these things? Or is it kind of, you know, onto the, onto the next? Yeah, it's interesting. 
the narrative has certainly changed. You know, we found a context error, you know, I guess three and a half years ago, approximately. And the kind of speaking circuit and messaging that I was working on then, um, I affectionately called Iron Man versus Skynet, right? And the, and the idea that everyone was afraid of Skynet and where are the jobs going to go? And is this the end of work, right? These kind of dramatic, bold headlines in the New York Times and beyond. And thankfully seen that transition a bit now and if anything perhaps gone to the other side of where are we going to get enough skilled workers to do all these things and and a part of that transition i think was awareness part of it was cultural but a big part of it was companies starting to demonstrate that the future of work does involve humans right that we need humans to do the things that we do whether it's lockheed martin and you build fighter jets you know to keep the world safe or your united technologies and you do everything from making sure that we can get up a skyscraper in New York easily to get down an escalator in the airport. You know, those kind of companies led the way and we started to see that they weren't looking to automate every job. And the, the cold hard facts are you're not going to automate any, every job in, the, in our lifetime, I would argue. You know, most jobs involve somewhere between 20 to 30 distinct tasks. And certainly there are given tasks in there that AI and machine learning can help with. But the idea that you know, those could perform all of the tasks needed better than a human is just not true. And I usually, you know, one of my favorite stats in this arena is, you know, everyone looks at Toyota, who's done this great stuff around production and environment and automation. And if you look at Toyota for the last 10 years, robots have been responsible for less than 8% of the work on their global assembly plant, right? Wow. And they're leading the way. So, so I think, you know, it's everybody take a breath and let's figure this out. And there are a lot of things to figure it out. So I don't want to minimize the, the real change, but I would argue some of that change is more on the social side of the equation in terms of what is the social contract that we need to have between workers and this new workforce and, and the gig economy. And, and we came in and said, hey, we understand the blue collar side of this. And we believe that we can create iron men and iron women by using the best of technology, which is the analysis and distribution of data with the best of humanity, which is curiosity, creativity, empathy. You know, tell me how you're gonna program those in the near future. You're not. And those three particular skills, in my view, equal what's judgment. And I think what gets lost in many of the discussions and the narrative is, sure, computers are very good at analysis and they can provide you with a series of potential decisions in a given moment. But the reality is humans understand judgment and that's putting a decision in context. And I think, so for me, I'm bullish, right, about the future of work and, and we're excited to work with people like the World Economic Forum as they look towards a reskilling revolution. So I'm lucky enough to, to support some of their work around a global task force on the future of work in aerospace uh, in New York City. And we're seeing some, I think, amazing potential for how it's not about people losing jobs, but we're gonna create better jobs, right? Where people get paid for what's between their ears, not what's between their hands. And jobs that are ultimately safer and more sustainable and don't put you in you know, physical therapy for, for the rest of your life or things like that. And not that there's anything wrong with you know jobs that are physical or anything um, of that nature, those jobs are important too. But when you talk about, you know, the dangers of some of those professions and you've been to, you've traveled all over the world to countries like Switzerland and Nigeria to Afghanistan and on, how do you see the needs of tech and the needs of AI shaping from place to place? It's interesting. There, there are elements that are the same, 
right? You know, and that, you know, people are people. You know, I would argue all humans are skilled, right? The only difference in skills between humans has been their access to education, training, and technology. So whether it's been in Afghanistan, you know, helping the U.S. Army train the Afghan National Army on, on how to use some new uh, equipment that they sent to being in, you know, Alabama watching folks put together a Bradley tank, you know, that was the same. Another thing that was the same is there is a long time ahead where people need to put warm hands on cold steel, right? They need to install, maintain, repair, and inspect complex equipment. And that's not going anywhere. Now, having said that, to get you know, back to your question of the differences, clearly, you know, for me, there's three significant differences. One is the, the technical infrastructure. So the access to high-speed internet, the access to connectivity, to devices, that's very different. And, and that's obviously has to be factored in. The cultural side, you know, you can't underestimate as, as well. You know, how people interact with each other and how they interact with technology is very different. And that has to factor into any evolution going forward. And of course, the demographics are just very different, right? In terms of the, the young versus the old, the boomers versus the millennials, and what are their expectations and, and how do they learn? But at the end of the day, what was clear is that humans are needed to make our planes fly, our trains roll, our buildings run, and those humans will do a better, safer job if we exploit the power of AI to help them, not to replace them. Just curious, where were you in Afghanistan? I was in, I was in Kandahar, and so we were working with, uh, with the AMP and ALA and all that sort of stuff as well. And I can tell you that this is the sort of thing that technology missing from their lives was a huge issue. I mean, you're talking about people who, you know, things like care for their animals or farming or anything like that, that was aided by technology had a huge difference in, you know, their lifestyle and how they could support their families. So I, I've seen it firsthand as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. And in my case, I was at uh, the Kabul Military Training Center, so up in Kabul, and, and it was amazing to see the power of technology, the impact that it can have. The part of it is just the access to information, but the other part is obviously, in our case, was supporting, teaching them how to use these particular pieces of equipment. And it was just amazing to see that the relationship that they had and the power of, in this case, you know, we were doing some work with, with 3D graphics at the time. And, you know, as you would know, a lot of the, the challenge for, for the coalition forces, you know, yesterday and today wasn't, it wasn't a language issue, right? You could convert whatever it is you were trying to share into Dari or Farsi or whatever you wanted. It was actually a literacy issue, right? And so how do you convey this information? And, and technology provided that power by 3D graphics, right? Our eyes, the universal language of sight we used in that way. So I found it very powerful to, to be there and, and the commonalities and the openness I thought towards technology was very rewarding and, and actually trying to do a small part to help both American and, and Afghani forces move forward was great. And I wouldn't forget that there's a big part of rural America and rural Canada, frankly, that suffers some of those same challenges when it comes to technological connectivity. When you get outside some major centers, this ability to access, you know, 3G, 4G, 5G is not as ubiquitous, I think, as many of us think. And that provides a pretty unequal playing field for the ability to both, you know, start and run a business, but also to deploy the kind of software that we hope to. You know, it's funny, you look at 
those maps, those like coverage maps that you always see from like Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile and all that stuff on those commercials. And when you go to a place where you, and I've been to a lot of these places uh, when I was in the army, that you go to these places that have no connectivity and you're like, you don't have like one bar. It's like no connectivity. And there's obviously, you know, large percentages of people there. Like, how do you, how do you access that sort of stuff on the go? You, you take it for granted that you have a certain type of internet speed or, or whatever it is that you can download your podcasts, you know, wherever you are. But, um, but those things, obviously, a lot of people are working on and how to try to bring faster connectivity. And I think that there's a huge business case, obviously, for that and people bringing connectivity. But I'm so interested in this idea of, you know, what you call warm hands on cold steel, this idea that, you know, context error is AI being used to augment human labor. But how does it work? How do you leverage AI and and deploy it to to help augment labor force working on these physical projects? So the, the first part of our journey was actually getting out there and understanding it. And we had been blessed, you know, over the years to have spent a lot of time in these far-flung places watching people inspect, maintain, operate the complex equipment. So we came with some base knowledge, but now with this new context of how do we use AI to empower people and to give them this, um, we spent time, you know, at the top of a skyscraper in New York City, watching people install and maintain air conditioning units to, you know, rural Connecticut, where they were, you know, at a private school, to the factory floor of the F-35 as they were building F-35s in Fort Worth, Texas. So, so we spent that time kind of revisiting some old homes and some old friends, looking at how we could see where AI could add value. Because at the end of the day, nobody cares about technology, right? You got to solve a business problem. And, and how are we going to specifically add value to these, to these blue collar workers and these industrial workers? And what we found was there was two elements that were really broken when you think from a product perspective. One is, as you would know, you know, whether you're walking up to an Apache or looking at an M4 or you're looking at an airplane of any kind, commercial aircraft, it doesn't matter who walks up to that aircraft. It's the same checklist. It's the same manual. It's all of the same reference materials. And when you think about that, really, it doesn't make sense, right? Because depending on who walks up to that, they have a completely different background and context that is required to get the outcome you want, right? Which is an effective performance of some procedure. So why do we just have this very blanket, this is the way it is, read this document and figure it out, and then wonder why we one in four times there's an error made. And so we said, we need to start with the human first. So when we looked at how do we design AI, we decided with a very human-centric approach. So our idea is not that there's a piece of equipment and gather all the information about that equipment for a person. It's actually, we start with there's a person and Ian is standing beside you know, a 747 right now and is required to do a procedure. What's all the relevant information that Ian might need to get that job done? As Ian, to Ian should not be standing by a yeah. 747. To be clear, if I am if I am the one working on a 747, we are we are all in <laughs> dire straits here. Yes, yeah, so it may be uh, back away from the landing gear. Uh, yeah, but may, hey, maybe that's maybe I need context there to 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 help me through the process. But yeah, sorry, uh, I go on. No, absolutely, and that that is actually the point in regulated environments knowing whether a person should be standing next to that given piece of equipment or be the right person to be doing that job. But our idea was, okay, 
Ian or Gabe is staying next to this piece of equipment, what's all the relevant data? And so that's our first kind of IP is being able to in real time go and find within an enterprise, within the IoT network that's out there, within the big World Wide Web, what is all of the relevant information that could support this person who's trying to perform a task? Now, of course, although that's a, a significant subset of all the data that might have existed, it's still not consumable to that person. So then the second part of our software figures out, well, given where we are, what time it is, what's going on, what is the most important stuff that you could provide right now? And so we're providing this real-time knowledge to the worker as they do the job. So another, you know, quirky little term I occasionally use is this, it's the blue-collar whisperer. So we're kind of whispering in people's ear as they go about their job, like, be careful, that's hot. Or just a reminder that six months ago you worked on a similar procedure and perhaps you got it wrong, so you might want to slow down. Or the ability, and I think one of the most powerful abilities that we've created, is the ability to actually talk to the equipment. So one of our projects is really essentially very much like a chatbot in today's vernacular. And it's this idea that imagine if you could walk up to a piece of equipment and just talk to it and just say, you know, what tools do I need to work on you? When was the, oh, that's when interesting. Was the, yeah, when was the last time you were serviced? This is what is really exciting about Internet of Things. And I think we see a lot of applications of IOTs of like, you know, you can talk to your toaster and you can talk to mm -hmm. your microwave and you can talk to, you know, different sort of things like that. I think a lot of it is consumer related as its position to, you know, the consumer, right? But the idea of like a wrench staring at you and you being able to like scan that wrench and it's like, hey, this is what this is for. Like, this is what you should be using it for. I think it's super fascinating when you're working on, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, which is a completely different thing. Like at the end of the day, my my microwave is is pretty dummy proof, you know, and I can find the recipe wherever it is. I guess I shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't be cooking with my microwave per se. But I think this idea of the connected devices being able to tell you how to use them in context is fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really important, particularly in the industrial environment where the pace of technology moves so fast, right? And, and the equipment is being upgraded constantly and changing. It is literally impossible to keep all of the training and even operational materials up to date in every moment, right? Like, and distribute them. So if you take away that distribution challenge, right, and have it on demand, and if you lessen the burden on training of trying to train everyone for every possible scenario in advance, which has become impossible, and just say, no, on the job, let's provide access to intelligence and let the human use their judgment as they go to perform tasks, I think you can, you can have a very powerful change. And a bit of that came to me and Carl through our work with defense and, and the military specifically. And, and as you know, Ian, you haven't been in the army, you know, they're constantly looking today, how do we, how do we reduce the number of MOSs, right? At the occupational specialties that you have, you don't have the luxury of having these dedicated resources for every single task. Yet at the same time, you can't train everybody on every potential eventuality. And so that really broke the existing education and training system. And some of that uh, has levered opportunity for technology to come in and actually bridge that gap. I think a lot of companies that have extensive training programs, especially technical training programs, if you're trying to figure out how to, you know, problem shoot a, an Abrams tank or a, you know, or some type of Humvee or something like that. The problem, like you said, is that we got to find the one gal who can fix this in the battalion, you know, the group of 600 people or so, but that's slow. And then there's a huge gap where it's not being worked on. 
And, you know, if that person's sick, then you have to find someone else who can do it. And then all the answers are in these manuals that are 600 pages long. It's just not really practical. And the evolution of that was that, okay, now these manuals are online, so you can just kind of control F and search your way around for the solution. But the idea that you could augment that with, here's a video of someone doing, you know, working on the thing, which is pretty interesting to here's the problem to diagnosis of, hey, this thing is wearing down, you should probably replace it now to, hey, here's augmented reality to show you on the vehicle where you should be fixing it. That is the next step. How far away are we from that? So I think when you look at niche applications of that, you know, some of it's happening already today through devices like the Microsoft HoloLens, which is a very powerful piece of hardware, and there are others in that, in that realm. I think it, when you think about that being ubiquitous and just applied to everywhere that would make sense, I think we're, we're years and years away because you have everything from the technical challenges of the battery life of wearables and, and comfort and ergonomics and safety when you start to put these into different environments but you've also got the cost factor, right? So when you start factoring in buying a piece of hardware for every worker who might do that, if you're the army or even if you're Lockheed Martin, you know, and you have roughly 35,000 blue collar workers, that becomes prohibitive towards deployment. So I think we'll see those types of scenarios where the highest value can be added. You know, so if a, a Rolls Royce engine needs to be troubleshot in Dubai, the idea that you can have, you know, your junior tech on the ground there throwing a HoloLens and that the person in Indianapolis can see what they see and kind of have a virtual session and then augment that with intelligence from companies like Context Air who can provide maybe some analytics that have been found in a database or, or maybe a previous work order that had been done on that engine. Um, you start to have those scenarios lead the way. And while they're leading the way culturally, the technology itself will, will evolve. So I think you know, we're in the, the five to 10 year range where this starts to be pervasive, but we've got a couple of years of really exciting work to do because even when it's, you know, just these small scenarios I talked about, they're not that small. There's, you know, Fortune 500, Global 2000, there are companies desperate to solve these problems from a safety perspective and from a cost perspective. So it will grow every year and, and that it won't be as long as perhaps it might seem to where this becomes much more common than it is today. It seems like for context there, the one of the big problems would be that you would have a ton of integrations with your customers, you know, internal data sets to inform the AI and to, you know, just help help users get get full use of the product. What do those kind of integrations look like? And what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen from folks implementing this type of, you know, blue collar AI? Yeah, certainly integration, right, which is in our case equals access to the data that you're then going to make smart decisions and, and generate insights from is critical. Now, the good news side of it is that through APIs and then kind of open standards, you can get access to a lot of that fairly easily. It's not a huge technical burden necessarily, but it does require kind of a scanning of that landscape when you meet a customer, right? So it's never going to be Microsoft Word where, you know, hey, just download our software from a website and, and off you go, right? The, you know, these are engagements that we have with our customers. So, so that's a reality. I think the other aspect is generating confidence from the organization to give you access to all that data, 
right? So there has to be a lot of trust involved. And it's why we're lucky that we had long-term relationships with these clients, you know, over the course of our careers, because there's a lot of sense of data that they wouldn't necessarily want to share with people. And so uh, it can be a barrier to entry for people. Will you as a startup be able to generate trust of a Fortune 500 company to access data that they wouldn't otherwise give people? You know, we're lucky in that uh, we've been able to do that, but it, it certainly isn't necessarily true of every organization because of security, privacy, and, and all those those things. So I think that's a reality that people have to, to consider. And then the other one that you have to watch out that you would have control of whether you're experienced or not is sometimes when people see these kind of solutions, it immediately becomes almost an academic exercise. And it's like, oh, if we don't access every single data source, then it won't be valuable, right? And Yeah, yeah, it won't be worth it. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, you know, our point very early on to customers is we only need a few sets of data to do better than the status quo. Certainly more is better, but a little goes a long way. And so it's important to position that to customers to not turn things into a science project to explore how much stuff you can get. It's actually, what's the minimum amount of information you can connect to to get the outcome you want? I want to talk about mobile for a little bit. You know, we had um, Juan Perez, the, the CIO of UPS on here. They did a massive mobile integration across all of their drivers for UPS. And it was a really interesting case study of how to drive business results. But it all started with mobile. It seems like a lot of the people that are on the ground that would be using this application, that would be using Context Air, would be rooted in mobile, that they would be using this on the go in some form or fashion. Do you feel like adoption would be something challenging for the end user for this type of application? So I think it can be. In our case, we decided to mitigate that by focusing on ensuring that we weren't about the hardware, we were about the data. Meaning that the important part isn't what device the user has, right? Whether that's a wearable device, an AR headset, a phone or a tablet, but actually that the problem technically we thought was more important was what are you trying to tell that person regardless of what device it's going to go on what's the smart piece of intelligence that you're going to give them that's going to change their behavior and so by taking that approach we're able to go in and say we don't actually care what your end users have right if it's a phone that's fine if it's a wearable that's fine and it allows us to just start from that baseline i think for those in the hardware business and and particularly those in the dedicated augmented reality space that is a huge barrier as to what is out there what's available and then you've also got the cultural reality of getting people comfortable with whatever piece of hardware you've got so our strategy has been to to remain agnostic to that and work with what's there under again that premise that perfection is the enemy of good enough right like just get out there provide intelligent context to people and they'll make better decisions and don't get hung up on the hardware or how much data get focused on the outcome and making that outcome better incrementally every day, every month, every year. And the return on investment will pay for itself. And ironically, some will then pay for that technology that gets you closer to utopia. Our audience of, you know, CIOs and CTOs and IT leaders, I'm sure are listening and thinking about all of the different ways that this would integrate across their companies with a little bit of concern about that implementation. Talk to me about the implementation of something like this. Who are the different stakeholders involved and who are the different people that need to make sure? I mean, obviously, you know, IT is going to be one of those, but it seems like it's a lot of this is coming directly from the business. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's the value proposition is very much driven based on operational impact. So you need to have the, you know, the operation people have to care and have to be bought in, regardless of whether you can technically implement or do it. I think in our experience, and my experience, not just at Context Air, but, you know, but throughout my career is start small. Big dreams lead to big problems sometimes. And so it's good to have vision. Uh, it's In fact, it's a, critical to have a vision about where you're going to get and, and the state of the possible, but start small, right? Start in a safe, controlled, comfortable environment. So sometimes, you know, that's a, a project that might be run simply out of the CTO office, right? Where they've got a sandbox so that you're really proving out the use case. In other cases, there's more formal business transformation teams or innovation groups are fairly common within the Fortune 500 these days. And so you go into that environment and they bring in subject matter experts from whatever operational group that you're, that you're looking to reside. And I, and I think that's a key to all of this is you need the buy-in of those operational users, but it's not just buy-in, you need their intelligence. Because a, you know, a challenge I think that most technology companies face, and we're not unique in that scenario, is that where do you start when you have this kind of platform or foundational concept of contextual knowledge in real time? Well, what job doesn't that apply to? So that's a blessing and a curse, right? So it's great from your, your 10 and 20 year vision scale, but it's a little confusing to your, your prospect or your customer to like, well, do I start with field service? Do I start with my inspectors? Do I start on the factory floor? So getting that scope and turning the tables away from what the technology can do and more specifically, what is the problem that needs to be solved at your organization or what is a good safe place to start and try this technology? is really where we start. And so that, again, that requires a, a collaboration and engagement with the customer that you have to have that trusted relationship and you got to spend some time. There's no rush, so to speak, uh, in this thing. We all want everything fast, but the reality is it takes a while. And just like somebody uh, smarter than me who develops rockets once told me, one degree off trajectory at blast off is pretty hard to correct for, right? Once yeah, that's space. exactly right. So um, I've always kept that one in the back of my mind. All right, let's get into lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform by Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps if you're interested in learning more about the lightning platform and all the cool things that you can do faster and easier. Lightning round, question number one, are you ready? I am ready. I guess technically, are you ready wasn't the first question. This is the first question. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? The most fun would be, sadly, TripIt. I feel like I've used TripIt before. Is this a uh, travel app, like it? What's it called? Uh, like a work travel application? Essentially, yeah. It it makes sure that my itineraries get around, and I know what gate I'm going to, and basically, I know where I'm going when I'm on the road all the time. What about favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? That's not the context air version of this. So, this consumer application. Consumer, I'll go classic, junk mail filtering. It started this whole mess and it's still a beauty. Do you have a favorite team, sports or otherwise? The Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, hosting and fighting against those terrible Boston Bruins later this week. <laughs> Do you have a favorite podcast or recent book that you've uh, listened to or read recently? Uh, actually, the book I was most fascinated by recently was a uh, biography of Rockefeller. Oh, that's interesting. What do you do for fun? Play hockey and tennis as much as I can. Always good to have a Canadian on so we can talk uh, We can talk some hockey. 
Um, yeah, we dropped two NHL references in here. I think uh, my citizenship will stay intact. My San Jose Sharks are uh, are have a uh, date with destiny with uh, with Vegas. That's actually the series I'm, other than my beloved Maple Leafs, I'm most interested in watching. Well, we got we have a ton of Canadians. I mean, it's it's the NHL, so there's a ton of Canadians everywhere. But we have a ton of Canadians on uh, on the Sharks. Small timers. Okay, what's your best advice for a first-time CEO? Play in traffic is probably what I would say. You get a lot of advice about you got to be focused and you got to be nail it down and every A plus B equals C. And, and, and I think we underestimate how much value there is in just engage. Don't overthink things. And, and so, I, you know, sometimes you get involved with things that don't necessarily have some bottom line outcome that you can tell to your investor group. You know, in our case, you know, it's the engagement with the World Economic Forum. I always think about, you know, is there a sale I can tie to that? No, but I can tell you that it's valuable to me personally, and I'm confident that it's valuable to context air. And so uh, as I mentor a few folks, my favorite saying right now has been certainly play in traffic. You know, not for kids, but for entrepreneurs, definitely do it. Final question. What's some advice for someone building a company outside of the U.S. and selling into the U.S.? Obviously, you know, Canada and the U.S. are... Bosom buddies, as they say, but I think I think there are some challenges that people might not realize. Yeah, the borders matter, and that it seems really easy, but you really need to factor it in. And and you know, I can say for the last two companies that I've been the CEO of, in both cases, we've set up a wholly owned U.S. subsidiary. You know, I think you've got to be on the ground in the United States, and that's not a reflection of the current president. I think that was true in previous administrations as well. Uh, and a part of that is the administrative reality. It's easier to do business within a, a country. It's a global economy, but at the end of the day, somebody writes a check in an office that's in a country and that country has rules. So I think get on the ground. But the other fact that maybe more is play in traffic in that city, you know, be in New York, be in Chicago, be where your customers are. The idea in a B2B environment, you know, I'm not smart enough to talk about the B2C world, but in a B2B environment, the idea that you could successfully satisfy your customer from a distance when you're bringing in innovative new technology or concept, I think it carries a lot of risk. So I think you gotta be on the ground and often I would recommend that you set up a set up an office in the right spot in the United States if that's going to be your primary market. I love it. That's it for the lightning round. Thanks again to our friends at the lightning platform by Salesforce. Fast and easy, just like the lightning platform. Gabe, that's about it. Any other final thoughts for the audience? Where can uh, where can people find you? Well, you can find us in the usual spots, but I always recommend, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn is two great spots to see what we're up to on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, the website will give you the, the basics, but I always encourage people, it's pretty easy, Gabe at contextair.com. I'm always happy to engage or help or provide, answer a question and, and just be a part of the communities that I'm uh, engaged with and, and happy to be a part of this IT visionaries and, and the Mission Daily world. Thanks to you, Ian. So really appreciated the opportunity and, and uh, hopefully it was useful to you and your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this concept of blue collar AI. And I think it's something that is the best companies in the world are going to nail and, uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully with your help. So thanks so much for hanging out, being on the show, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. 
Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. 